It's great to be back. I haven't been here the last two weeks. I was off speaking on the uh, 6.30 church weekend away and then another church's camp last weekend. So it's great to be back. But uh, let's pray before we turn to two kings. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we learned in the memory verse this morning in the kids' spot, uh, that all scripture is your word uh, and it is useful for teaching us, for correcting us, sometimes even for rebuking us, but always for training us in righteousness. And so, Father, we pray that your word might do that this morning as we start looking at two kings together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Rick, I feel like I'm in a cave up here. That might just be my issues, but just the sound seems... Is it the same out there or is it clear out there? just seems to be reverberating. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see how we go. Twiddle a few knobs and see what happens. All right. I've actually, uh, I've been looking forward to this week for a long time. Uh, my favourite time of the year has arrived because we've uh, come back to the Old Testament. Uh, and as you know, I love opening up the Old Testament. I love helping us see how all of God's promises, everything God has done right from the beginning of creation points us forward to our Lord Jesus. Uh, and when we look at the Old Testament, uh, and especially when we look at a book like this uh, in 2 Kings, we need to remember it's different when we look at Hebrews uh, or when we look at Philippians, which is written to people in exactly our situation, that is living after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is not speaking directly to us in, in quite the same way. There's not as much what we call application. Uh, instead, what we're doing is we're looking together at who our God is how he has worked through history, how he works in the world, and especially how he works to fulfill his promises. And so the particular part of the Old Testament we're coming back to is two kings, and we're picking up where we left off the story, if you remember from last year sometime, uh, at the end of one kings, funnily enough. Uh, and I hope, I hope you remember how exciting this part of the Bible is, uh, do you remember we were looking at stories about kings who get double-crossed and uh, go around killing each other off? It's all chaos. We've got prophets having incredible battles on mountaintops. Uh, it's Indiana Jones type stuff. So my hope always, as we look at a series like this, as much as anything else, my hope is that you just get into it, that you get caught up uh, in the story of this book and it just stirs up your love for God's Word and might actually drive you to go and read other parts of God's Word. Well, to understand where we're at, we need to remember the story so far, and you'll have this on your outline, but it'll also come up uh, on the screen. And the thing you need to remember is our two books of one and two kings are actually just one book. Uh, so that's the first thing to remember. They're just broken up because you could only fit so much on a scroll back in those days. And so we need a quick reminder about the story we've already had last year from one king. So this is my whistle-stop tour introduction, uh, a reminder, if you like, of what we've learned so far. So what we've got, the story so far, and the thing to remember about the story so far is it is all about the promises of God. That's the thing to remember. It's all about the promises of God. We need to remember, actually, that the whole Bible is about God fulfilling his promises to his people. Uh, and so if you remember, the whole Bible starts with the promises God made to Abraham. Uh, and the promises God made to Abraham, he said, I will fix the, the problem of human sin going back to the garden and the fall. I will fix the problem through the descendants of Abraham. God chose this man, nothing special about Abraham. God chose him, made promises to him, and he said, it will be through you that I will raise up a people for my very own. And then through that people, 
God promised to bless the whole world. And that promise of God passed on through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob and Judah, and it came to its high point with King David. Uh, Because God promised David, he said, it will be through your son, uh, a descendant of David, that would be the one who will come and bring God's blessing. Uh, What we call the Messiah or, or the Christ would rule God's people forever and bring God's blessing to the whole world. Now that great promise was back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want to say to you, uh, if you don't know all about these promises to Abraham and to David, intro to the Bible. I sell it all the time. It's coming up in term four. If you've not done it before, do it. So you know these key parts of the Bible. But 2 Samuel 7 is just one of those key chapters that is a key to understanding the whole Bible. So go read it again later on if you don't remember it. And so the thing is, 1 Kings starts with King David right at the end of his life. And that sets up the key question of one and two kings, which is who will be the messianic king? Who will be the descendant of David who establishes the kingdom of God? Who will be the son of David who comes to bring God's blessing to the whole world? So what did we see in one kings last year? Well, what we saw, if you remember, was a really bright start followed by an absolute hopeless finish. So a really bright start which then descends into chaos and hopelessness. And here's my summary, but you might want to go and read 1 Kings again to to get you ready for 2 Kings again as we get into it. So here's my summary. The first thing is 1 Kings 1 to 8, that's the bright start where we ask, could Solomon, the son of David, actually be the promised Messiah? Solomon takes over from David. It looks like he could be the one. He builds God's temple in Jerusalem. He rules with wisdom and authority. He's the wisest man the world has ever seen. The world comes to him to be blessed. And it's all looking so great. But then we saw in 1 Kings 9 to 11, the fall of Solomon. So it all goes bad for Solomon. Do you remember all the wives and all the concubines? Uh, Solomon stops ruling God's way. And he actually becomes like every other earthly king, using his power for his glory rather than for God's glory. And in fact, by the end, really, Solomon is more like an Egyptian pharaoh than what God says he wants for his kings. And from then on, it all just goes downhill. So in 1 Kings 12 to 16, we have this awful moment where God's kingdom splits into two. And so Rehoboam, that's Solomon's son, is an awful king. Uh, and the kingdom breaks into two halves under his watch. And here's a, ma- a map. In the south is Judah. In the north is the kingdom of Israel. So hopefully you're remembering this from 1 Kings. Judah in the south under Rehoboam, centered around Jerusalem. They have the temple and they have the son of David on the throne, a descendant of David. But Israel in the north, all the other tribes under a rogue general called Jeroboam. It all gets very confusing because you've got Rehoboam, Jeroboam and all that sort of thing. But even here at this low point, God's promises still stand. God is still showing grace to his people because a son of David is still on the throne in Jerusalem. The promises can still come true. And even for the northern kingdom, God says, hey, if you just keep trusting me, you'll be all right. There's an encouragement to them to keep trusting their God. But the story of the rest of 1 and 2 Kings is basically a story of total failure. So that brings us to the section we're in, which goes from 1 Kings 17 through to 2 Kings 8, which I've called the Kings versus the Prophets. 
So remember back to last year, we saw king after king turn away from God. And it focused mainly on that northern kingdom of Israel. That's where the story focused. But Judah wasn't doing much better. Uh, And the thing was, these kings were awful. They murdered people. They were immoral in every way. But what was the heart of all their sin? What was the sin of one kings? Do you remember? The worst thing they did. It was idolatry. That was the heart of their sin. They turned themselves and they led the nation away from the one true God to worshipping idols, especially the Baals, which were the gods of the nations around them. So what was God's answer to the problem? What did God do? God sent prophets and the prophets came to warn Israel and warn Judah and point them back to God. And the main prophet, and in fact, the star of one and two kings really, was that's what I'm hoping you'll tell me and remind me, was Elijah, I think some people said, Elijah. And then near the end, just to confuse you, his disciple, Elisha. Yeah, it's all very confusing. Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Elijah, Elisha. Why they couldn't name their kids Dave and Fred, I don't know. But anyway, so as we come to the end of 1 Kings, it was all these stories of the most evil king of all. And his name was Ahab. Well done. Ahab and his wife, Jezebel I still have not baptized a Jezebel so there you go and so what you have is Ahab and Jezebel versus Elijah and even though God had given Elijah the great victory over the prophets of Baal remember that story at the end of 1 Kings where where Elijah against the the prophets of Baal and Elijah wins hands down Elijah calls fire from heaven destroys all the prophets of Baal he proves once and for all Yahweh alone is God but Ahab and Jezebel won't change Despite that great victory, Elijah is always the underdog. Uh, there was a very few faithful people left in Israel. Most had turned away from God. And so that's where we're at. We're right in the middle of that story as we come to 2 Kings chapter 1. So let's get into it. 2 Kings chapter 1. And I've called the first part, if we go to our next heading, God hates idolatry in verses 1 to 8. And we start 2 Kings, I think, in actually what looks like it might be on the up. Look at verse 1. It says, after the death of Ahab. That sounds a bit mean, doesn't it, to say things are on the up after the death of someone. Uh, But remember, Ahab and especially his wife Jezebel were evil. They hated God. But remember, as I say, Ahab is dead. So we say, praise God. Surely it's got to get better. His son Ahaziah is on the throne. But if we think he's going to get better than his dad, think again. Flick back over to the last words of 1 Kings. Flick back one page. 1 Kings chapter 22 from verse 51 says, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria. And then verse 52, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him. He provoked the Lord God of Israel just as his father had done. Isn't that just a damning indictment on a person? You know, sometimes we talk about our politicians and we we give them a, a, a damning indictment, nothing like that. It's all horrible. So what we have is Ahab is dead, but Ahaziah is just more of the same. And it's telling, he doesn't just walk in his father's footsteps, he walks in his mother's footsteps as well and that's where we pick up the story at 2 Kings chapter 1 and it starts with Ahaziah having an accident Uh, they didn't have glass 
in their windows in those days. So he leans against the lattice covering his window. There's a warning for you, check before you lean against something and he falls out and he's really badly hurt. And so you picture him there lying on the ground, badly injured. And you sort of think maybe this will bring him to his senses because suffering can do that. And we saw that in Hebrews, didn't we? We saw how sometimes suffering can turn a person back to God, but no, it says there in the end of verse two, so he sent messengers instructing them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron, if I will recover from this injury. Do not go to Yahweh. Don't go to our God. Don't go to the God of Israel. Go over to Philistine country. Go to where my mother came from and go and ask one of their gods, Baalzebub. But the messengers never get to Baal because an angel tells Elijah, hey, go and cut them off before they get there he intercepts them with a word from the one true God look at verse 3 it says but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite go and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub the God of Ekron therefore this is what the Lord says you will not get up from your sickbed you will certainly die then Elijah left You can actually hear the sarcasm in God's voice in that verse, can't you? You can hear the sarcasm in what God says through Elijah. God says, am I not here? Have I gone somewhere? Is there no God in Israel? Do you not understand how perverse it is to go and ask a little idol in a foreign country when you have the God of the universe? God is saying, you are just a fool. You are a fool, Ahaziah. But of course, he is a fool, just like all of us are fools apart from Jesus. We were like Ahaziah before we came to know Jesus. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that the essence of sin is that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We get caught up in worshipping the creation, worshipping the created things rather than the one who created them. And for us, of course, it's much more likely to be the God of pleasure or the God of money or, or the God of real estate We don't worship statues of Baal, but it's the same sin. And God says the wages of sin is death. And so Elijah tells the king, don't bother asking Baal, you're going to die. This is actually a statement of God's judgment on his idolatry. Just like God says to us, the wages of sin is death. Just like God says to us, man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. And so the messengers take this book back to the king. I think this whole story is actually written for us to see the humour, by the way. Don't be, don't be afraid if you laugh. Don't be sorry if you laugh at the dark bits in these stories. They're meant to be humorous, even though it's dark. The king says, what's this all about? As they come back, he says, you can't have got all the way to Baal and back by now. Who gave you this message? And they say, some hairy guy with a leather belt. And the king is a bit like those cartoon characters when they realise that their nemesis has arrived. You know, like when, when the Joker says, oh, Batman, or, you know, Elmer Fudd says that rascally rabbit. You know, he knows who the, the, the guy is. Who knows who the hairy guy is? It's Elijah. It's his dad's nemesis he is back to face him. Because that's Elijah's look. He is the wild hairy man in the desert. And so God has spoken. Ahaziah is going to die because God hates idolatry. Idolatry. But Ahaziah isn't going to give up without a fight. Our second heading, God shows who the real king is. This is verses 9 to 12. Now, as I say, Ahaziah isn't happy to let things rest 
at this point, no hairy prophet is going to tell him his time is up. So he sends one of his captains with 50 men to Elijah. And the captain calls out to Elijah, man of God, the king declares, come down. Now, please understand this. Because some people get a bit funny about what happens next. They say, how is it fair for God to do what he does here? Which is kill all these men. Uh, Well, firstly, remember we are all sinners. And if God treated us fairly, then we would all die. Uh, But God, by his grace, lets us live and gives us the opportunity to repent. So it's a misguided concern from the very beginning. But more than that, these soldiers are not coming to seek an audience with Elijah. Uh, You send a messenger for that, not 50 soldiers. Uh, And they're not coming to give him a guard of honour. They're not coming to keep him safe uh, on the roads. The king has sent them to arrest him and kill him. And when the captain says, man of God, the king of Israel tells you to come down, he's actually showing he is backing the wrong horse. If Elijah is the man of God, you should be saying, I'll tell the king of Israel what to do on behalf of you, not the king tells you what to do. You see, he should know the kings of Israel don't tell the prophets what to do. That's not how God established his nation. God is the true king of Israel and the king serves under God and listens to his prophets. The prophets challenge and rebuke the kings, not the kings, the prophets. See, what this actually was, was a declaration of war. Man of God, the king who worships Baal tells you, the prophet of God, to come down. And in a war, you choose sides. These men chose the king and Baal. There were still a few faithful people in Israel who had the courage to say, I am with God and his prophet, not with the, but not these soldiers. And so God responds and protects his prophet, but more than that, he shows them yet again who the real God and the real king is. Look at verse 10. Elijah responded to the captain of the 50, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. This is showing everyone yet again, who is the real king? Is it that fool who fell out of his window or is it the God who brings fire from heaven? And who is the real God? Is it that funny little statue in Ekron or is it the God who brings fire from heaven? But the king doesn't learn, he sends another 50 and the same thing happens. This is actually a reminder to us, there are shades of grey on many issues. There are subtleties on many issues, but not your loyalty to the Lord. There are shades of grey on all sorts of things, but not your loyalty to the Lord. Are you with God? Are you with Jesus? Or are you against him? There's no sitting on the fence. Which brings us to what I think is the high point of this chapter, my third heading. God shows grace to those who fear him. This is verses 13 to 15. So by this time, if you think about it, there is 102 smoking bodies on the mountainside. But Ahaziah doesn't care. He sends another captain and his men in, which again shows you how awful this king is, doesn't he? He doesn't care about his men. I'll just send another 50 and after that another 50. But this guy, he looks around him and he knows who the real God is. And he knows who the real king is. There's no arrogant command this time. Look at verse 13. It says, The third captain of 50 went up and fell on his knees in front of Elijah and begged him, Man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Already fire has come down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s. But this time, 
let my life be precious in your sight. You notice how different he is? He doesn't stand at the bottom and say, man of God, you come down. He goes up to the man of God and falls to his knees in front of him. There's no bold command. It's just a plea. And in fact, I think there's a statement of allegiance here. Do you see where he says, these servants of yours? Do you see that? We're not servants of Ahaziah. We're not servants of Baal anymore. We're servants of you and your God, the real God. And so God lets them live. Look at verse 15. Says the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. So he got up and went down with him to the king. It's interesting. Some commentators question this guy's response. They wonder if it can be true faith because it comes from fear rather than from grasping God's love. Uh, I don't think they've read their Bibles. God is to be feared. One of the reasons I trusted Jesus, not the only one. But one of the reasons I trust in Jesus is I fear God. I hope you do too. I I know that hell and God's awful judgment is real. I know that what awaits me if if I don't turn uh, and put my trust in Jesus and hell will make this little fire in 2 Kings chapter 1 look like nothing. The fear of the Lord, the scriptures say, is the beginning of wisdom. And I would argue you only truly understand God's grace and God's love when you first understand how fearful is his anger and how fearful is his wrath. You only understand how wonderful it is that Jesus died for your sins when you first understand how horrible it would be to have to pay for those sins for yourself. Isn't that right? And that's what you see here. This man is wise. He fears God. His fear leads him to repentance and so God shows him grace. That's the gospel. That's the same for us. And please remember that about our Lord as we read these passages that focus a lot on judgment. Remember, God would much rather forgive than judge. God would much rather rain down grace from heaven than rain down fire from heaven. But he will only do that if we turn to him in humility and turn to him in faith. Look at Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 coming up on the screen. Tell them, as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Always remember, God would rather forgive than condemn. God longs to show grace to those who turn to him in faith. Well, that brings us to our final part of the story, my fourth heading, God keeps his word. Elijah marches in to see the king. There's no messing around. Look at verse 16. Then Elijah said to King Ahaziah, this is what the Lord says, because you've sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel for you to inquire of his will, you will not get up from your sickbed. You will certainly die. Elijah was nothing if not a straight shooter. Ahaziah, you are going to die. And then to make the connection totally clear for us, straight away we're told, look at verse 17. Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. This is so important. 
Do you notice how matter-of-fact it is? Do you notice it doesn't give you any details of Ahaziah's response? It doesn't say that he argued with him. He It doesn't say Ahaziah cursed Elijah or begged for mercy. And you notice how it doesn't tell you how he died or when he died because it doesn't want you thinking he died of natural causes. It doesn't want you thinking he died of because some man did him in. It just straight away says, Elijah said the word of the Lord. And so Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord. And it's making the point, God's word works. God keeps his word. If God says something, it will happen. For Ahaziah, that truth that God keeps his word, that truth was a terrible reality. And it is still a terrible reality for people who refuse to turn and trust in Jesus. Isn't that right? Everything God has said happens. God says, Hebrews 9.27. Man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. God says, John 3, 36, the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. God keeps his word. God has said what we face if we will not repent and trust in Jesus. God has said what we face if we turn away from Jesus. If that's you, 2 Kings chapter 1 says to you, do not be like Ahaziah. Do not be like Ahaziah, fear the Lord because his word will come true. But for most of us here, this is actually an incredible word of comfort, isn't it? God keeps his word because we know that God has made wonderful promises to us. God has made wonderful promises to those who fear him. God has made wonderful promises to those who have turned and trusted in Christ. God has promised us that if we trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. And God always keeps his word. And God has promised us that if we trust in Christ, nothing can take away our place in his kingdom. And God always keeps his word. John 3.16, you know it well. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God has said it. And so it is true. Or Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God has said it, and so it will happen. So for us who trust in Jesus, how wonderful is it to know that God keeps his word? What was a horrible truth for Ahaziah is actually the greatest news in the world for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do keep your word and we thank you that you have made wonderful promises to us through your son our lord jesus and we thank you that if we trust in jesus we know for absolute certain that you have forgiven our sins and brought us salvation and so we pray that we would not be fools like ahaziah but instead we would be people who turn to you fear you and so know your grace and we pray this in jesus name amen